In this episode, we'll be talking about ice, which is a crystal that is less dense than its liquid form, a major source of fresh water globally, and is a special princess's power when she just lets it go. Ice can be found all over the world, but mostly sticks to colder regions like the poles and mountain ranges, and when enough comes together, it can form a glacier. Seeing as I spent two years in grad school studying glaciers, I'm stoked to share some cool facts and cooler stories about glaciers with you today. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. Glaciers form when there is enough snowfall in a region to accumulate year after year without all of it melting. After a few years of sitting around, the weight of the newer snow pushes the air out from between all of the snowflakes and compacts it into ice. If this happens for enough years, say a hundred or a thousand, you have a glacier. But the pressure doesn't stop once the snow turns to ice, and that pressure actually causes the ice to flow, rearranging all those ice crystals so that the ice can ooze on down the mountain. But eventually, that flowing ice will encounter something warm, whether it's warmer air, water, or rock. The ice will soak in that heat and start to melt. If you have a glacier that gets more snow every year than the ice that melts, then the glacier will get bigger. But if you have a glacier that melts more than it accumulates snow, then the glacier will get smaller. As you can imagine, with climate change warming our air and water, it's getting harder and harder for the snowfall to keep up with the melt, especially with some of that snow now falling as rain. So deploy the climate scientists and glaciologists. We're here to figure out what changing ice means for our planet's future. My master's thesis focused on a tiny glacier in Alaska. It was about five miles long and was nestled up in some of Alaska's eastern mountains. Named Jarvis, it has no connection to a comic book AI, but has been a subject of computer programming for a number of years. My goal was to take the tiny details of Jarvis Glacier, like the temperature or the behavior of the ice crystals, and predict how changes in those variables would impact the way the glacier flows. This puzzle is a common theme among ice scientists. Just change the variable and the location and you'll get yourself a whole new scenario. But luckily, we live in the 21st century, so we can get computers to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us through computer modeling. To explain a little more about computer modeling, here's Clara Deck, a friend from grad school who not only spent her own two years working on a glacial flow problem, but also kept me sane for five rainy days on Jarvis Glacier in 2018. Thank you. My name is Clara, and Kate and I met in grad school at the University of Maine. We were both studying earth and climate science, and more specifically, we were doing glacier computer modeling. And... I had my background in geology from undergrad, and before that, I just was really interested in being outside and learning about our natural system, so that's kind of what led me to that path, and now I just got a new job in sort of like science writing and education and just moved to D.C., so I'm very excited. So what are computer models? So a computer model is a graphical and or mathematical representation of some real world thing and it can help us to understand how those phenomena behave in real life. So something that maybe we can't access 
like Antarctica. We use a computer model to understand sort of the dynamics and how things are moving and how things are interacting without actually having to be there. So while I was modeling something pretty small in glacier standards, you were modeling a large part of Antarctica. What was it like to be solving technical problems for such a big part of the world? Yeah, so I was focused on the Ross Ice Shelf, which is a floating piece of ice on the coastline of Antarctica, and it's about the size of France. So yeah, it's very large. And when you're modeling something that large and you're not doing a model that's going to take five years to run, you know, you're doing a model that you want to be able to run within a day and get results kind of in a timely fashion, you have to sacrifice some detail and understand that you're not going to be able to completely capture all of the fine details of that system. So you have to be okay with some level of uncertainty so that you can study the system in like a larger scale. So it's very different than what you were doing on a smaller spatial scale. But in both cases, it's still really useful to have real data about those places, right? So why, for instance, would you and I go to this tiny little glacier in Alaska and sleep in the rain for five days? So essentially, when you're doing a computer model for glaciers or anything else, you need to give the model a starting point or a reference point that's rooted in real life true data. So whether that is ice flow speed or whether that's surface temperature or some sort of real parameter that you have to go out and measure and um, measure it well, and then you can put it into your computer models to ensure that what you're modeling is actually real. Because if you start from made up numbers, then your results are also going to be made up So to get more into the nitty-gritty about our time on the glacier, one of the reasons why I really want to do this podcast is because I'm having a huge amount of fun connecting science with adventure and hopefully getting to the community of people that loves being outside and loves having all of these crazy stories to tell but doesn't necessarily know as much about the hard science behind a lot of what we're seeing. So I talk to people about the science, but I also want to talk to people about all of the crazy stories that scientists get themselves stuck into because we're inevitably in these really extreme places. (laughs) What are your thoughts and feelings about our very first day on Jarvis Glacier in Alaska? Oh my gosh, all the thoughts and feelings. (laughs) So we went... To Jarvis Glacier during the summer of 2018, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we went up to Jarvis Glacier. Um, me personally, this is not Kate's experience, but my experience was that was my first time kind of backpacking, wilderness camping at all. So we go out to the middle of Alaska, we're taken by helicopter to a very remote mountain glacier, which you basically can't hiked to reasonably and it was you know from an outsider's perspective it was a miserable day (laughs) we had expected it to be high 50s or even in the 60s it was mid 30s and constant misty rain so we were cold we were wet 
And on top of all that, our gear, over 500 pounds of gear, was dropped off by the helicopter pilot in a different place than where we were supposed to be camping. And I think if I remember correctly, it was like two miles away. That's totally correct. Yeah. Two miles on ice, too. We're not just walking through the forest. Yeah. Yeah. By all accounts, and like repeating all of those details to you right now, it was horrible. (laughs) But while we were there, I was so stoked to be there. I was so stoked that we were on a glacier. We were doing this really cool research. We were going to be there for a couple days. And I would say our morale stayed incredibly high for the situation that we were in. I would agree with that. Yeah, ultimately, the excitement for being outdoors and doing cool science outweighed those many negatives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... It was so I know you've been to Greenland before, but that had that time on Jarvis, even though I've done backpacking, that was the first time I'd ever been on a glacier. So I feel like I kind of had a similar experience where there were all of these crazy things happening, but we were all just so stoked to be there that it, uh, yeah, it outweighed the fact that it was cold and wet and we couldn't find our gear. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say the same for our other gear. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, we did have the benefit of this being a pretty new, exciting experience for both of us. So it made it worth it in the end. (laughs) Totally, totally worth it. While our first day might have started out rocky, or (laughs) I guess icy, we spent the next few days splitting our time between moving gear up to our camp and collecting data at our field site, which was about the size of four or so football fields. Claire and I were mapping different features we saw in the surface of the ice, like cracks or lines of dirt, so we could get an idea of how Jarvis was flowing. If you've ever mixed two colors of paint together, you can picture how the two different colors get striped or marbled within the container before they meld together. It's similar on a glacier. If there's a layer of dirty or darker ice within the white ice, it will move with the glacier. And because glaciers are moving slowly, Jarvis for instance is only moving about 60 feet a year, we can map these bands of darker ice to see if the ice in that section of the glacier is getting squished, stretched, or turned which helps us figure out how this big block of ice is flowing. Our other two field partners were recording the locations of sticks that were placed in the ice in 2017. This might seem low-tech compared to fancy computer modeling, but these locations actually helped me figure out how realistic my model was. When you compare the location of the sticks in 2017 to their locations in 2018, you can figure out how far they have traveled in that year. On Jarvis, we got the expected results that the ice toward the center of the glacier was flowing faster than the ice on the sides. This was because the side ice was coming in contact with the rock and slowing down, which is also what my computer model said. So kudos to technology and to sticks in the ground. So what is your favorite memory from your time on Jarvis? I would say the last night we were there, we were getting helicoptered out in the morning. And it had been horrible weather the whole time, like fog. You couldn't see five feet in front of you. It was still cool to be on the glacier, but you couldn't see the mountains around you. But on the last night of our field work, the skies just completely cleared out. It got a little bit warmer, and we got the most beautiful pink alpenglow reflecting on the mountain range at the top of Jarvis Glacier and it was so beautiful. Yeah I was 
I was definitely freaking out the whole time and we were trying to finish doing the research that we needed to do. And I think that you had more sense in that scenario and you were like, Kate, come on, just stop freaking out and let's finish our project. And we had a little bit of an appreciation moment, but I was just running around all over the place. I was like, I can't handle this. (laughs) It was ridiculous. And I think our team lead who had been there five or six years before said that was probably the best sunset he's ever seen on the glacier so it felt really special it felt like a little reward for putting up with all the bad weather and losing our gear and stuff and it was just awesome the next morning we packed up camp cleaned up our field site and then said our goodbyes to this incredible force of nature that had been part of our lives We would continue working with Jarvis Data until we finished our projects and our degrees, but this was the last time our team would be coming to this glacier. It felt appropriate that we got sun and clear skies as we took off our crampons for the first time in five days, climbed into the helicopter, and flew over the mountains and back to the Green River Valley that had been only a short flight to our west the whole adventure. Claire and I continued to room together after that, though it was in an actual house rather than a wet four-season tent, so I got to hear more about her adventures outside and on the ice. Tell me about your favorite field snack, both what it is and the coolest place that you've eaten it. Yes! Okay, so other people probably know this, but I have been very inexperienced in backpacking, so... You need to make sure that the snacks you are carrying around with you are relatively light. So those big, like, heavy, wet packs of pre-made meals are really good and nice. But if you're going out for a long trip, you got to bring something lighter. So my favorite trail snack is a bagel, a trail bagel. And during this past summer... I was part of a research expedition called the North Cascades Glacier Climate Project. And by the end of it, I was calling it the North Cascades Glacier Bagel Project. (laughs) We had bagels for lunch every day. Never got tired of them. I was always like looking forward to my lunch bagel and it would renew my energy and my stoke for the rest of the day. And the coolest time that we ate a trail bagel was our last day of field work. We had climbed Mount Daniel in the North Cascades in Washington, and it was the steepest glacier we had climbed so far. And I have a heights thing, I have a steepness thing. I was terrified. And we get to the top of the mountain, it's the most beautiful view I've ever seen, and I'm about to poop my pants (laughs) because All I can think about is that now we have to go down the steep glacier on our crampons on ice, and it's going to be horrible. So I eat my trail bagel. It makes everything right inside me. It renews my excitement. I had it with cream cheese, which is also a key. Just bring the cream cheese. Don't worry about it going bad. It's fine for a couple days, whatever. Good pro tip. Yeah, and it it was amazing. I loved it. Yay. I have to say I've been eating more bagels of late and I think of you every time I eat one and it makes me happy. Perfect. I should say, yeah, it's also part of my everyday real life diet as well. (laughs) Perfect. Bagels make people happy. (laughs) Absolutely. 
So if you could go adventure to any ice body in the world, where would you go and why? Oh my gosh. I mean, I want to go to Antarctica so bad. I feel like part of the reason I want to go is because so few people get to go that I just want to be able to say that I've done it. Um, But also, it's just such a unique place in the world. Obviously, it's a continent covered in ice. There's no permanent human civilization. Um, It's got totally different living ecosystems, and it offers the best chance to see glaciers of all sizes kind of do their thing and I would jump at any chance to go do that I would be a dishwasher in Antarctica in a second just get me down there I totally agree with you I actually one night very late I decided I was gonna apply to basically just be an uber driver down in Antarctica and they 100% did not accept me probably with good reasons (laughs) but I feel the like just getting down there via any way would be fine. I feel like you have to have a PhD to even do those jobs. Exactly. <laughs> you have to be able to hold conversations with all of the crazy awesome scientists that are down there, even if you're just driving them from the runway to the base. <laughs> right. You have to know who all of them are before they get in your car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on board with this podcast. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about your new podcast. Is there any social media that you want to plug for yourself? Within the past year, I started blogging about science on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is at science isn't so scary. And the idea behind that is that a lot of people I talk to, like my family, my friends, they hear about the things that I'm interested in and the things that I'm doing, and they have this idea that, oh, well, I can't understand that because I'm not a scientist. And I wholeheartedly don't believe that. I think that science should be for everybody if they want to learn it. So I share accessible little tidbits of science, mostly earth science and the science of climate change on my Instagram. And it's a lot of fun. So come visit me. (laughs) Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's super good. And I will put a link to that Instagram somewhere in the resources for this and on my website actually too you're there i love it (laughs) to recap this episode glaciers are formed from compacted snow that eventually turns to ice because the ice is so heavy it causes the glacier to flow we can figure out how the ice flows by looking at cracks and dirt lines in the surface or by freezing sticks in the ice and measuring their positions over the years This information can help us set up computer models of these glaciers, which allows us to both understand how the ice is moving and start predicting how their flow might change in the future as our climate warms. Now that's it for this episode, folks. But if you want to hear more about ice and its place in our changing world, check out the next episode where I talk about different things ice can make besides glaciers. And if you're ever stuck in a wet tent for days or terrified at the top of a mountain, just remember to pull out your trail bagel and know that everything will end up fine. Thanks in this episode go to the professors at the School of Earth and Climate Science at the University of Maine for teaching me everything I know about glaciers, and especially to my advisor who was patient with me while I waited through the learning process of computer modeling, and who decided to send Clara and me to Jarvis Glacier in the first place. 
Also, thanks to the North Cascade Glacier Climate Project for the incredible work they've been doing on Washington glaciers for over 30 years, and for providing Clara with all the bagels she needed. <laughs>